0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to PA Study Sesh. I'm your host, McKenna Morgan, and this week we'll be discussing disorders of the stomach. All right, everybody, welcome back. I know it's been a little bit my sincerest apologies. I had a little bit of a crazy weekend on call. It was really fun, but very busy. So regardless, here we are. We're back. We're going to be discussing disorders of the stomach today. I decided to keep it just to disorders of the stomach because um, it just didn't really feel right to be adding some other miscellaneous topics. Figured a short and sweet episode would be welcomed. Um, You guys may also be noticing that I sound way better. I want to give a big huge thank you to Blueberry. They're the ones that do my podcast hosting and uh, I won a very wonderful new microphone for them. So, so hopefully, you guys are enjoying that. That was also another reason for the delay, I had to figure out how the heck to use this microphone with my laptop. So, really excited for this. I just think it sounds so much better. So, hopefully, you guys are enjoying that too. So, without any further delay, let's go ahead and be talking about the stomach. Describe the vomit associated with pyloric stenosis. It's non-bilious and projectile. What is the location of Virchow's node? And it's supraclavicular. What is the number one risk factor for gastric cancer? And this is H. pylori. All right, so as I mentioned today, we're just gonna keep it very short and sweet. Um, There's only four topics on the stomach section of the blueprint, and I'm actually going to combine two of them. So, gastritis and peptic ulcer disease are nearly identical. However, gastritis is typically asymptomatic. So, that's what I'm going to say about that. Um, Everything else as far as etiology, diagnosis, and treatment is just about the same for the two. So easy, one less thing, right? So etiology for gastritis and peptic ulcer disease, number one is H. pylori, that's helicobacter pylori. Number two is NSAIDs. However, we also want to consider Zollinger-Ellison syndrome or cancer if we have a non-healing gastric ulcer. And we're going to talk about those a little bit later in our neoplasm section. So symptoms, as I said, gastritis is typically asymptomatic. Peptic ulcer disease, however, is usually not. So patients usually present with dyspepsia, kind of an epigastric pain. And a GI bleed is very common. Peptic ulcer disease is the number one cause of an upper GI bleed. Ulcers can be located in the stomach or the duodenum. The duodenum is the most common location. And their pain here is going to be worse before meals or one to two hours after meals. This also kind of translates to being worse at night because generally patients aren't eating at night. And I remember this because during digestion is when the acid neutralizing substances are produced and released into the duodenum. So that gives the patient's pain relief. Make sense? Okay. When the duodenum is empty and there's not that digestion going on, there's less of those protective factors and more of that acid to create that pain. So that's kind of how I remember it. As opposed to gastric ulcers, their pain is worse with food. And this makes sense because we have increased acid production in the stomach during digestion. That makes sense? Hope so. All right. So gastric ulcers pain is worse with eating or within that 1 to 2 hour window of eating. Duodenal ulcers are worse before they eat because their duodenum is very empty or 2 to 5 hours after they've eaten, again because their duodenum is empty. Diagnosis for either one is an endoscopy, remember, an EGD, with a biopsy. This is the gold standard. This biopsy tests for cancer as well as H. pylori. And they're going to take this little biopsy and they're going to do what's called a rapid urease test for H. pylori. And that's usually the most common test that we'll do. However, you can also do a urea breath test if an endoscopy is contraindicated. And you can also use this test to determine if the H. pylori is eradicated. Another test you can do is called an H. pylori stool antigen. And I know there can tend to be a lot of confusion about antigen versus antibody. Uh, If we want to go a little linguistic route here, antigen, the root word as a suffix, gen, means that which produces. So an antigen literally means that which produces an antibody versus the root word antibody means anti-life kills a pathogen. If you're not so into root words, antibodies are made by my body. Antigens sit on pathogens. Okay, so that kind of helps you remember that antigens are something that are on the foreign substance. So when we have an H. pylori stool antigen, that test is only going to be positive if that foreign substance is there. So therefore, this test can be used for both diagnosis and confirmation of eradication. Okay. Fourth and final test regarding peptic ulcer disease and H. pylori are serologic antibodies. And because antibodies are made by my body and they tend to stick around because they're an immune response, they can confirm that I've been infective, but because they stick around, they're not confirmatory that I've eliminated the infection. Okay? So treatment here, it just depends on whether we are H. pylori positive. If we are, we call it triple therapy. The acronym here is CAP, CAP, and it stands for clarithromycin, amoxicillin, and a PPI, proton pump inhibitor. If there is an amoxicillin allergy or any penicillin allergy, you're going to switch to metronidazole. And I know that breaks our rule about using a macrolide in substitution for a penicillin, but we're already using a macrolide with clarithromycin because macrolides end in mycin. Um, We'll get to this further, but metronidazole is a really common GIGU, broad-spectrum antibiotic. So we're either going to use a CAP or a CMP for H. pylori-positive peptic ulcer disease. If they're negative for the bacteria... We're just going to treat them very similar to as if they have GERD. They're going to get acid suppression with PPIs, H2 blockers, other medications such as misoprostol, antacids, pepto, sucalfate. Wouldn't put a lot of emphasis on those, but definitely know your triple therapy drugs. All right. So that was two topics pretty fast. Next up is gastric cancer. Adenocarcinoma is the most common subtype. And again, this is a very secretory tissue. you know it secretes a lot of acid, so you want to think of an adenocarcinoma. Risk factors here, again, H. pylori is number one. So it's kind of why we want to think peptic ulcer disease. if it's not getting better, maybe think cancer. Also a lot of nitrate and nitrite containing foods. If you haven't seen these on food labels, these are typically your salted, your cured meats, your smoked meats, or pickled foods. Symptoms here again, dyspepsia, much like peptic ulcer disease, but they'll have those red flags of early satiety and weight loss. If you read those in really any question, get concerned. They also may have some... They're not specific to gastric cancer, but I do think they are some buzzwords that could additionally clue you in. One is called Virchow's node, and this is a supraclavicular lymph node. And the other one is an umbilical lymph node, and this is Sister Mary Joseph's node. Okay? All right. Uh, These patients may also have iron deficiency anemia. This is an anemia of chronic disease. Remember, they're having upper GI bleed as well. Uh, Diagnosis, same thing. It's a cancer, so we're going to get a biopsy. We do that via endoscopy. Management. Again, with cancer, we don't really need to focus on management for cancer treatment. Um, But same thing, surgery, radiation, chemo, etc. Zollinger-Ellison syndrome. This is kind of a a zebra on this list, which is why I'm talking about it last. This is a gastrin-secreting neuroendocrine tumor. It's really quite rare. Uh, and basically what it means is that the patients secrete more gastric acid. So more acid equals more likely to produce ulcers. Uh, these are more commonly in the duodenum. So, again, if they're having refractory ulcers, consider this. Um, These sometimes can also be malignant. Diagnosis of Zollinger-Ellison syndrome is done doing a fasting gastrin level. This is generally for screening. And just want to note here that you want to discontinue H2 blockers and PPIs prior to testing because they can falsely increase the gastrin level. And here you can also do what's called a secretin test. And a positive result for this is that gastrin levels increase after secretin is given. Normally, these are an inhibitory feedback loop, so normally gastrin goes down when secretin goes up. Okay? Again, this is a zebra of a diagnosis. I wouldn't spend a whole lot of time Memorizing how gastrin and secretin are related, but do know that um, Zollinger-Ellison syndrome is associated with elevated gastrin levels. Therefore, a fasting gastrin level makes sense to do as a diagnostic test, and this is also associated with a secretin test. Okay. Treatment. It's a tumor, so if we can, cut it out. And uh, like I said, sometimes these are malignant, so at that point we're just going to do acid reduction and maybe surgery. Okay, final topic for today, and this is a pediatric topic, and this is pyloric stenosis. And this is hypertrophy and hyperplasia of the muscular layers of the pylorus, or the pyloric sphincter, depending on which word you use. So basically, they're having an obstruction Food can't get out of the stomach to the small intestine. This is the number one cause of intestinal obstruction in infancy. And it normally occurs around 3 to 12 weeks of age. Symptoms here are non-bilious, which means it's not green, projectile vomiting, and the non-bilious makes a lot of sense because the contents of the stomach have not gotten into the duodenum, which means they haven't had a chance to mix with the bile because bile is released into the duodenum, okay? Uh, on physical exam, you're going to palpate an olive-shaped, non-tender, mobile mass. That's very important. You read olive-shaped. Think pyloric stenosis. Very important. Diagnosis. Ultrasound is the most common. It's babies, less radiation. Very easy to see. You can also do an upper GI series, but again, this that's pretty, uh, pretty invasive, expensive, and it's radiation. But boards love buzzwords, so what you'll see is what's called a string sign. And what that is, is the contrast is going through the narrowed pylorus, and so it looks like a tiny little string. Management of these babies, hydration first. They're vomiting a lot, so they're gonna be dehydrated. They may have some metabolic abnormalities, which we're just gonna talk about later. And surgical, it's called a pyloromyotomy. So pyloro, pylorus, myo means muscle, otomy. And that was it for today. Very short episode. Like I said, it just didn't really feel right to be mixing and matching so much. I think we'll just do a a GI hodgepodge like we normally do. So um, let's just do some review questions right away. What drugs are used in triple therapy for H. pylori positive peptic ulcer disease? This is clarithromycin, amoxicillin, and a proton pump inhibitor. Just pick one. If they're allergic to penicillin, they get metronidazole. At what age does pyloric stenosis most often present? And this is three to 12 weeks of age. What is the gold standard for diagnosis of peptic ulcer disease? And this is endoscopy with biopsy, followed by rapid urease testing. All right, five takeaway points from today's lecture. We're going to just drill this into your brain today. Peptic ulcer disease is the number one cause of an upper GI bleed. Number two, pyloric stenosis has an olive shaped mass on physical exam. Number three, Antibodies are made by your body. Antigens sit on the pathogen. Number four, endoscopy with biopsy is gold standard for diagnosis of peptic ulcer disease and gastric cancer. And number five, I can't say this enough, H. pylori positive peptic ulcer disease is treated with triple therapy, CAP clarithromycin, amoxicillin, and a PPI. Alright, everybody, that's everything for today. I hope you are enjoying the sound quality as much as I am. If you have any comments, questions, concerns, feel free to send me an email. My email is pa at gmail.com for copies of the blueprint. For a discount code for 20% off your subscription to Pecmonic, head on over to my website. It is pastudysesh.blueberry.net. I would really appreciate it if you could subscribe to us as well as rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you are listening to this podcast today. I'd like to thank Lee Rosefeer for the use of his songs, Curiosity and Tech Toys for the intro, outro and question portions of this podcast. And we're just going to keep working distally through the intestinal tract. And we're going to be talking about the small intestine next week. So um, again, this podcast is for you. I just love and appreciate your feedback. Share us with your friends. Shout us out on social media, P.A. Study Sesh on Facebook. And I hope you guys have a wonderful week.